0: Welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. For the last few weeks, I've been talking to people who work with collections behind the scenes of the museums. I've been curious about not just the collections they keep, but the reasons behind why they do what they do. This week, I'm speaking with Dave Unger, Director of Administration and Operations for the Collection of Historical Scientific Instruments a museum containing a collection of instruments and tools of science collected by Harvard since 1672. Today, it's one of the three largest university collections of its kind in the world. But Unger's interest in tools started long before he came to Harvard. I wanted to learn more about where it all began. Dave Unger, welcome.
1: Oh, thank you. It's great to be here.
0: How did you become interested in museum collections?
1: It goes back right to when I was little, and I grew up in this this old farmhouse on a sheep farm, and we had all sorts of stuff around in the barn, in... Kind of in the woods around that around the house at the edges of fields just old buildings full of old stuff it was kind of like living in a in a collection and when i was little i remember the stuff was just so mysterious and interesting to me i just wanted to know what it was you know and how it worked what um, kinds and- of
0: things were in this collection of stuff
1: it was a huge, huge variety of things. There was like old saw blades or old old woodworking tools, chisels. I remember finding a, a bunch of old like pedal cars, kids toy pedal cars, almost like, a, like big wheels, but from the 40s or 50s, I unearthed these underneath a pile of boards or something like that. And so, yeah, I was so interested in what all these things were and who were the people who had lived there before our family live there and there were like all of these clues so it's sort of start from these these old things and go exploring to to understand them so you know maybe that would be going to the library to to get out books about woodworking tools to try to figure them out or it'd be trying to fix things or use them again like those little toy cars I definitely wanted to get working so I could ride them around and then there was also just old equipment corn harvesters and bailers and all sorts of old stuff around that i just want to understand and then kind of mixed with that every summer my family would go to washington dc to visit the smithsonian museums i think my mom was going went to a conference every year and the whole family would go along. And so my brother, my dad, and I would spend the days going to all the museums. Of course, Air and Space Museum was a big hit with me, I think, as it is with a lot of kids. But then also the American Museum of American History in the basement, I think they've changed it now, but they had this great collection of old model steam engines and and just a lot of tools and machines that that kind of looked like the stuff I was finding at home to some degree. So it was like this other place of seeing the things that were that were kind of for me toys or kind of part of the background, but but seeing them in this different context where they had, you know, lights on them and little labels that described what they were and people gathered around and look looking at them. I think that that's like a early way I started to get interested in in museums and and collections. My folks were, they moved to a farm as adults. They didn't grow up on farms, so they were learning what all the things were as well and talking to old farmers in the area and kind of people who'd been around forever. So then I was also kind of either overhearing those conversations or they'd, they'd share those those things with me. And definitely a lot of time spent with my folks digging stuff out. Probably some oversight of me crawling around in these big piles of rusty of rusty sharp things
0: yeah that makes sense (laughs) did you ever learn about the people that owned these things
1: a little bit I don't think I ever was quite like disciplined enough to like put together the full story but the people who first built the house that we lived in was built in the 1860s were wool merchants And they had a carting mill, so processing wool, getting it ready to be spun into yarn. Um, And they had sheep. And so you could kind of find in the barn, like, indications of it having been a sheep farm originally. And then there were other animals there over time. And so we'd sort of find things in the barn about that. There was a great spot upstairs where people who had lived there or worked on the farm had carved their initials.
0: Oh, cool. Over...
1: Over, you know, 150 years, people had carved their initials. There was some numbering. I don't know if they were numbering years or if they were actually counting hay bales put in the barn or something like that. But there were these like literal kind of messages from the people who had once worked there.
0: That's so neat.
1: I think that connection that artifacts can, can create to people in the past that like the things themselves are interesting and sometimes beautiful or curious, but I think what makes it even more powerful is that it's a something that people had held and used and was part of somebody else's life. And then it's traveled some path through time and come to your hand or into a collection or museum or a shed. And it's like a real thing that real people used in their lives. It creates such a such a great connection. I think that's something, as I've become professionally involved in museums, that's continued to be really important to me is that that feeling of connection. To people of the past.
0: So you're at the University of Chicago studying industrial archaeology, which is fascinating. And then you ended up at Harvard for your PhD. Can you talk about
1: that? I came to Harvard to the history of science department to kind of continue industrial history. And history of technology and kind of l- learn more about how all those old things worked and the, the steel mills and the, and the um, old, um, the woodworking tools and all, all of that stuff that had kind of been the questions I'd been gathering kind of my, my whole life. It was sort of a, a chance to really dive deep into learning about how all those things worked. While I was working on the degree, I started working in the collection of historical scientific instruments actually they happen to be launching a project to photograph all the objects in the collection and they were launching it when i happened to be looking for some work for the summer and i had done some photography so i got a, a summer job photographing objects and it was just amazing to be able to go into the collection and see just the rows and rows of of stuff. And it was like even more stuff to, to learn what it, what it did and, and what it was. And doing the photography, I was going object by object, first object on a shelf, second object on the shelf, first shelf, second shelf. And I ended up doing that for several years while I was in graduate school and kind of gradually got more and more interested in the museum work. And so as I was finishing up, I realized I wanted to work in museums as opposed to going kind of a regular academic route.
0: What was it about museums that sort of enchanted you over academia?
1: I think there were two, two things that really struck me. One was the, the hands-on nature of it, that especially as I'd been in grad school for however many years that was at that point, it felt like kind of just words and words and words, like talking about things that were written about things that people had talked about, and then writing about the conversation that you took. And it was just sort of, there was so much focus on verbal and written expression. And I was interested in exploring a much wider kind of range of ways to tell stories or, or learn about things. So building things, hands-on activities, multimedia, Stuff And museums seem like a place where you could do all of that stuff, but then also be really rooted in the research and in the, all of the, the kind of rich thinking.
0: Why are museum collections valuable? And particularly, why is it valuable to preserve scientific instruments?
1: Generally, I think preserving objects from the past are important in a in a number of different ways. Part of it is there's an informational aspect that there's things about the past that nobody writes down because it's too obvious. It's just like the day-to-day life, like just how you how people do things, how people move around, how they get things done. So much of that is too it's just too obvious to write down, or the people who are doing it aren't people who write a lot of things down there's lots of reasons why a lot of that story doesn't end up in other kinds of historic records letters or government reports or or any of that that kind of thing so the objects are really important for preserving that information or rediscovering that information and scientific instruments are a special case of that that there's so much about how science is done on just a day-to-day basis like people in in labs at workbenches, or even at their desks, where in the classrooms, wherever they're doing their work, and they're surrounded by stuff. And that stuff shapes what they do, like how they go about their business. And then it also shows you all sorts of subtle things about how those people think about the world, how they think about their work, how they think about learning about the world or teaching about how the world works. In what way? a great example one of our kind of star objects is an orrery which is a, a model of the solar system it was a mechanical thing all the planets go around the sun and they all turn with with their moons and and whatnot it shows how how the solar system works which is sort of straightforward but when you kind of dig into it it's a very specific kind of idea about the universe that the solar system that it's all predictable right that it's all moving according to a clockwork it's like literally a, taking this idea of a clockwork universe and building an object that shows you that. One of the interesting things about this orrery is that you can see at the top all of the planets and how they move, and the mechanisms are down below, which often would be covered. In this one, there's windows, which at colonial time when this was built, glass was expensive. So this was like a specific choice to add windows so you can see the gearing underneath, which has this, you could see as this statement about not just the knowable, regular movement of the planets, but that those movements are kind of based on relationships that are understandable. It's like the gears underneath are like the equations. Those are like the differential equations that at the same time people were using to calculate where planets were, where all sorts of regular things in the natural world were happening. It's an object where, as a viewer, you're standing in this like nowhere place. You're standing outside the solar system looking at it. It's like a God's eye view of of the solar system. That's a good way um, to put it. Which all really lines up with how people were starting to think about understanding the natural world during the Enlightenment. That this was all knowable, that equations were kind of behind everything, that as a scientist, you could have this kind of view from nowhere and understand it all. So all of that kind of philosophy is embodied in that object. That sort of understanding is kind of encoded in any of the objects. Um, It's just a lot harder to see with the more recent ones.
0: Do you have a favorite object?
1: There's so many favorites, and there's so many different kinds of of objects. We have 20,000 objects in the collection. They range from, uh, I think the earliest is 1,400, and they go up roughly to the present. So there's a huge range to pick from. There's a Persian astrolabe from the 16th century that I, that I really love. It's just a beautiful object. It's kind of a brass disc with some different pieces on the front that rotate. And it's just this beautiful brass object.
0: What's an astrolabe? What was it used for?
1: An astrolabe basically shows the relationship between time and where things are in the sky, the stars, the sun, and, and sometimes the moon. And so from that relationship, you can calculate lots of things things. There was a early modern text that listed some thousand different uses for an astrolabe. So you could calculate where a particular star would be on a certain day and time, or you could make observations of the sky and calculate what time it is. You could use it for navigation. You could use it for surveying. There was There was a huge, huge number of uses for it. So it's just this really interesting, dense, calculating machine that can really tell you a lot about the world. And one of the things that I love about it is that the mechanics of it are really simple and the basic usage is something that is completely understandable. So I sat down and you know, spent some time and learned how to, how to actually use it for some of the, the simple operations. And there is something amazing about it. Taking this object, you know, wearing gloves, of course, but taking this object from you know, maybe 1590 and using it to calculate like what time the sun is going to set today in Cambridge you can use that and then calculate it out and then, you know, look up the time of sunset or wait for the sun to set. And it's right, which is just amazing to me. It's, it's, it's like a simple thing, but being able to, to actually kind of manipulate that object and this thing that has been used for centuries.
0: That's so cool. As you were sort of saying before about the farm equipment in your barn, you know, being able to hold something that someone from the past held and
1: used, you yes. know,
0: it's crazy to think about.
1: Yeah. We also have a different kind of calculating object that was actually owned by Galileo. Wow. That his personal instrument maker made, and he, he made it to send to somebody he was hoping to get a job from. But it's this object that like Galileo hell. And now we have it in our collection and, you know, it's right there on display and you, you can see it.
0: What does um, it feel like to hold something like that?
1: I mean, it's certainly a, a very special thing. It's, it's, it's hard to summarize what the feeling is. Because on the one hand, it just feels like a piece of brass, right? Like it just feels like it's, it's material self. But if you kind of let your imagination wander. That you can think about kind of all the hands that have have held this. And then, you know, of course, Galileo, you know, the celebrity of celebrities of science actually held this thing.
0: Why do you love your job?
1: It's great to be able to move back and forth between so many different Kind of kinds of work and kinds of thinking. So being involved in the actual objects and all of the the kind of care and feeding of of the objects, thinking about public outreach and and exhibits, uh, and then also engaging with classes and with the history of science department that are f- sort of fully in that academic realm. So. It's an interesting job that allows me to kind of move back and forth between all of those different worlds, all of which are important to me. And you know, I've never wanted to, uh, never been good at choosing between them. So it's great to kind of have them all in one place.
0: Well, Dave Unger, thank you so much for doing this. This has been great.
1: Oh, that's, I've enjoyed it. This is great. Thanks.
0: Today's HMSC Connects podcast was produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. Special thanks to Dave Unger and the Collection of Historical Scientific Instruments for their time and expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.